a brother might be willing to give his kidney for a transplant for a sister. A dad may unassumingly just wake up every morning to make breakfast for his son or to send his daughter to work without complaint for years. Sometimes not even with a thanks. No, I say, ask, what do you do when you love a person? Probably you have your own story of what you have done when you love a person. You can think more of it, but today, this morning, as we come to 2 Samuel 7, we are looking at two amazing expressions of love. A mere human who loves his Creator God. And the Creator God, more amazingly, loves mere humanity. So I'd like to begin by praying to our God and then I'll jump right into reading Second Samuel 7 for us and we'll look at these two amazing love. One that is great, the other that is just uncomprehensible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Draw our hearts to you as we read and understand your amazing love for us. Amen. Let me read to us 2 Samuel 7, verse 1 to verse 3. If you have a Bible, uh, you can either look there or you can read. Uh, it will be excellent because we will learn from it together. 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, Go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now in today's chapter, King David, king of Israel, he has finally reached the peak of his life. The, real, the rest of Israel are also enjoying the security and the rest that David has brought to them. In chapter 5, if you were with us, King David became the king of Israel. He established his kingdom in Jerusalem, now called the city of David, and he won the decisive battles between the Jebusites that they could not defeat for generations and the Philistines. And also in chapter 5, we heard there's a king called Hiram of Tyre. He started to send envoys to David and along with cedar logs, carpenters, stonemasons, and they built a palace of cedar wood for David. In chapter 5, David already knew that God has established him to be king for the sake of God's own people. And if that's not sufficient, chapter 6, last week, if you're here with us, the ark of God that has been silent for many years have appeared. Curses and blessings have appeared, and now the ark of God has come into the city of Jerusalem, the city of David, the Mount of Zion, with God and God's people, with God's people and with God's king. So as we come to 2 Samuel 7 verse 1, what we see is that David is well settled in his palace. God has given David rest from all his enemies all around him. And finally, Israel has his own promised land, his own city. The king has his own permanent land. No longer will the king be living on tents or in caves. For the first time, the king has a permanent house because this will be the permanent city of God. In fact, Israel is becoming a great nation more and more that Israel will either draw nations to him, to it, or Israel will bring terrors to others. We'll read more about this in the, in the weeks to come. But at this moment, 
Israel is arriving at the dream that their fathers have dreamt of. The promise that God made to Abraham hundreds of years ago finally seemed to have arrived. Let me read to you again God's promise to Abraham. Just now we have read it in Genesis 12. Let me read it to us again. This is what God said in the first book of the Bible. The Lord said to Abram, which is Abraham, Go from your country, your people, your family's household to the land I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. In fact, as David looked out at the city of Jerusalem, he himself started to look like that promised offspring of Abraham. Israel, as they look up to the city and to the palace, they start to see, this is the offspring of Abraham. In fact, God said this to Abraham. Look at this. Um, I'll read to you from Genesis 17. God said, I will make you, Abraham, very fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And God carry on, and through your offspring, Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed. The city of David, the, the, the Mount of Zion, the kingdom that's established, that nations look up and they can find blessings. So David seems to be kind of fulfilling God's promise to Abraham, and becomes the offspring that all nations can actually know God. David should be one happy man. But is he happy? Look at verse 2 and we'll see that the king is not happy. In fact, he's deeply troubled. Look at verse 2. He, he called Nathan, God's prophet, and says, Nathan, here I am living in the house of Cedar, while the ark of God remains in the tent. What David actually meant is this. Look, Nathan, something is not right here. How can a mere human king like me enjoy this luxurious palace and the king of kings is situated in that tent below how can this be so being a man after God's own heart you realize that David loves God and he wants to honor God at the height of his career he's he's unlike all the others isn't it unlike the previous king saw, or unlike the, the judges, that they come and beg God when they're in trouble, and when in good times, they kind of go and enjoy themselves and forgot about God. But not David. David is the man after God's heart, and his heart was troubled at this moment. So he comes to, to Nathan and says, Nathan, here I am, living in a house of cedar, where the ark of God remains in a tent. To put it another way, David is saying, look, this is totally wrong. How can the servant live in the palace and the king lives in the tent? And Nathan's reply was, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. It seems to Nathan that David's desire is transparently good. And Nathan knows, as the rest know, that God is with David. So what could go wrong? So he, he, he used his own wisdom right, instead of God's and says, David, go and do what you want because God is with you. But verse 4 tells us this. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And God said, verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of Siddur? Have, have we ever thought uh, in our interaction with God that God must be pretty thankful when we allocate our time, our resources, and you know, we put Him in our schedule, this is what I'll do for God. God must be so glad that I'm in His team because I can contribute to Him. Um, it, it could be sincere, but, but, but we are glad that we, we can contribute something to God. But how wrong this is, even for David. Even with the best intention, this is the reality. It is not us who include God in our plan. It is always God who includes us in His plan. Let me say that again. The reality is this. It is never us who put God in our plan, but it is always God who is willing to put us into His plan. And this is why God's reply is this. Look at verse 5 carefully. What does verse 5 say? Look at verse 5. He says, Go and tell my king, David. Is that, is that what God says? What did he say? Go and tell my servant David. Because the greatest king of Israel is finally put in the right place. The greatest king you can think of, his rightful place is to be the servant of the high God. David, are you the one to make me a house? And the answer is no. I have not dwelt in a house. I have brought Israel out of Egypt. I have been moving around in a tent. I have raised rulers in, to shepherd Israel. But I have never asked for a house of Siddur. So while, while David's intention was good, the reality is God has never needed David or in fact any rulers to upgrade his tent or to initiate a plan for God. Because God is always the one who initiates. We are always looking at our high side what God has done. But God is always the one who has initiated. And it is no exception for this. In fact, God turns the table around from verse 8 to 16. That instead of David expressing his love for God by building a house for God, God reveals his love for David and through David his love for all of us, for the world. God reveals his love by revealing what he has done for David what he will do for David, and what he will do through David's offspring for the rest of the world. So look at the first one first, what God has done for David from verse 8 to verse 9. Um, look at it with me, verse 8. Now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture for, from tending the flocks and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Notice who is the one who is working here. In David's life previously, God has declared earlier in verse 6, I brought Israel out of Egypt. Verse 8, I took you from pasture. I appointed you ruler. Verse 9, I have been with you. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. So who is the one doing the work of blessing, of rescuing, of fighting? God is the one who has done all the work. He's the initiator. He's the leader. He's the one who first loved David even before David knew him. And here in the city of David, God says, I have brought you here when you were a mere shepherd boy that Samuel didn't even look at or your dad look at you. So God 
He is the initiator. And God carries on in verse 9 that He will do more for David. Look at verse 9. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. I will give you rest from all your enemies. No, David, you are not going to make my name great. Verse 9 says, I will make your name great. David, you are not the one who provide a place for me. Verse 10, I will provide a place for you and, and all the people. David, you will not offer me a resting place. Verse 11, I will give you rest from all your enemies. David, you will not build me a house. Verse 11, I will build you a house. We'll indeed more, read more about this later on in the next few chapters. But, but the point is this. In this second section, God is the one who first loved David, who loved Israel. God is the one who will continue to love David and continue to love Israel. God is the one who is faithful and He has never forgotten His promise to Abraham. And God is the same for us. He who has loved us has never stopped loving us and He will never stop loving us. So as He remembers His promise to Abraham, and to bless the world through Abraham's offspring. The question now is, who is this offspring? Is it David? Because it seems like it is David. Is David's kingdom the one that will draw all people to God? It seems like in verse 1 when we first read it. But David soon realized that God's promise can only be partially revealed in him. Because the, the word of the Lord goes on in verse 12. Uh, and this is what God says. When your days are over, David, you rest with your ancestors. I will rise, raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his own, his kingdom. You know, you know, in this, in this interaction of love, David soon realizes that he will die before God completes his promise to bless all nations and give that perfect rest. Three times God says rest, and the last rest God talks about is when you die. So God has a perfect rest that's still not ready to be reviewed. In fact, God goes on to promise an offspring to David, just like Abraham. So suddenly he realized, Abraham, uh, David might have thought, oh, I'm the promised offspring. Suddenly he realized he is Abraham version 2.0. Do you see what's happening? He thought this is what's happening and God says, but you will die and I'll give you offspring. And he described the offspring. He realized, David says, aren't I Abraham 2.0? God has really revealed God Abraham's promise, but now I'm going to reveal even more to you. You are merely having a foretaste of what I'm going to do. So like God's revelation to Abraham, God now begins to list out his plans for David's offspring. Look at verse 12 to 16 with me. This is what God says, When your days are over, David, you rest with your ancestors. I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. What's the last word we just read? The word is what? It's forever. What is forever to you? What's forever to you? You know, for a man and a woman, when we say forever, it, it could be my best effort or it could, if, you're, if you're a good man or a good woman, right? it is as long as you're alive. Because our forever is only up to how much we have that we can give. But we express it as forever because this is all. But what is forever to God? 
Does God ever die? Does God ever sleep? Does God ever turn around? No. What does forever mean when God says His throne will be forever? No, for, for David's throne and kingdom to last forever, there are, there are two ways to read it. Okay, there are two ways to read it. And I don't want you to take it too lightly which one is right and which one is wrong. But look at it from what the scripture says. The first one is this. Either David's offspring will continue to be on the throne one after the other. David's dynasty will continue and never end. Or then there will be a son that nobody has ever thought of that can live forever and rule forever. So which one would be more humanly possible? One, David, your dynasty, your son after your son after your son, your offspring will always be king, and the world will start to see how great God is more and more and more. Or there will be one that will rule forever, and that they will see and be blessed by God. From human's perspective, actually the former seems more like it, isn't it? If you're a reader, the former looks more like it. In fact, David, I believe he was convinced of the first one. In fact, nearing his own death, David called his son Solomon and he gave him instructions before his deathbed. This is what David said to Solomon in 1 Kings. By the way, if you, if you read the, the, the Bible narratives, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you have to read them as a package because that's how people will read it as a package. So look at 1 Kings right after 2 Samuel. This is what David said. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son, Son, I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong, act like a man, observe what the Lord your God requires. That the Lord may keep his promise to me, if ye all descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their hearts and soul, you will never fail to be to have a successor on the throne of Israel. In fact, for the rest of David's life, he knows that he is not the one to build God's house. But because he loves God so much, you know what David did? In his lifetime, he spent the rest of his time accumulating things to build God's temple. This is what First uh, Chronicles tells us. David said, My son Solomon, he's young, inexperienced. The house to be built for the Lord shall be great, magnificent, and fame and splendor in the sight of all nations. Therefore, I will prepare for it. So David made extensive preparation before his death. What king... It's like David. Other kings are thinking of their kingdom. David's thinking, my son is too young. My son is not experienced. God's kingdom, God's temple must be great. I'm going to spend my time building that up. Which king thinks of his own name secondary and think of God's, king, God's name primarily? The king who is after God's own heart. No wonder the Bible says that of David, isn't it? Here we catch a glimpse of a man that everyone else calls king. That's what verse 1 starts off. And he sees himself all the time as the servant. So for generations to come, this covenant between God and David, also known as the Davidic covenant, is seen in the light of David's house always having a king on the throne. But is this the forever God is speaking about in 2 Samuel 7? If we take a step back of 2 Samuel 7 and we read this David. Davidic covenant in a kind of careful reader. If you're a second reader, you don't just read second Samuel, you read through the whole thing. You know that something is not going to be right. Because by the time you reach the end of Second Kings, where this whole story is, you realize that um, things, are, things are not right. Because there is no greater king like David that appeared. Not even, David, not even Solomon. Because Solomon, in his own lifetime, the Bible says that Solomon, when he grew old, his heart turned away from God and looked at other, king, other gods because of his many, many wives 
and concubines. And right after Solomon, his rule wasn't actually that great because the moment Solomon dies, the kingdom of David split into two, ten tribes, the northern tribe and two tribes below remaining for David's kingdom. And the ten tribes were eventually put in exile and never came back. And at the end, the last chapter of Second Kings, you read that God's temple was burnt up by King Nebuchadnezzar. The king that remains became a puppet that collects pocket money and eats at the table of King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. That's how this book ends. So when you are a reader of Second Samuel 7, you, you will think of Solomon, but you also think something is just... Not right. Even the temple that Solomon built is really burnt into ashes. All the riches that are there are in Babylon. So never again will history have a great king like David or one that is like Solomon. As God says to David in verse 12, you will rest with your ancestors. So did every single son of David. They all rest with their ancestors. All the sons of David dies. All except one. He is the one Israel can turn to for eternal kingship, eternal throne, the one that God promised in verse 14 of today's passage. I will be his father and he will be my son. He is the one that all nations on earth can be blessed because his throne, his kingdom, his kingship will never end. He's the one that later prophets speak about. I want to just bring you to two passages that the later prophets after kings speaks about. In Ezekiel, this is what Ezekiel says long after David is dead. God says to, to, through Ezekiel, My servant David, that is the offspring of David, My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd day and their children and their children's children will live there forever. My ser- my, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. And another prophet, Isaiah, says this, For to us a child is born. This is a famous one, isn't it, for Christmas. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. You know, in Isaiah's time where David's kingdom is kind of in, 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 in trash, right? And, and, and things couldn't look... Uh, worse than it can be, God's promise just become bigger and bigger. God is not ashamed. Ah, Paisa, you know, things didn't work out. God just says it's going to be much bigger than you can imagine. And in fact, as you look at Isaiah, it's amazing because God says, I'm going to share my glory with him. Which son of David dares to call himself wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Which son of David dares to say this? David will give you a big tight slap, isn't it? But Isaiah says, from, from David comes one who will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this is where New Testament begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse of our New Testament tells us this. We read this often. And it begins with this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. Dear friends, God's promise to bring all nations and all people to himself through the offspring of Abraham, through the offspring of David, is found in Jesus, the anointed one. He's the one that God proclaims at his baptism, at his transfiguration, the voice that comes from heaven and says, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. 
In fact, the Apostle Paul actually explains this whole thing for us in Acts. I'll just read this for us and, and just have a glimpse of what this whole thing kind of links up from Abraham to David to Jesus. This is what Paul says, and this is the good news. We tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors. He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors. His body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead will not see decay. Therefore, friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is promised to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Paul didn't come out with it. Because this is the story of God. This is the story of God's love for all of us. God promised from that very first book that one day people can be blessed. One day we can be forgiven. One day we can enter eternity. Now God's blessing is not all the temporal things we see as we go through MRT or bus stop or as we own our TV at commercials. Those are not God's blessing. What God wants to bless us is that we can enter into eternity. That we will be removed from our sins and our guilt, that our shame, our grief, our sorrows, our pain that follows us to our grave will not follow us when we are risen from the dead. The longing to find rest, do you find you hope for rest, peace, joy that can last? They will come in that perfect kingdom. Because the reality is even when you're enjoying this is something I learned from my daughter. From young, I thought she was just being greedy, right? But I learned, I learned one thing from her. Whenever she's enjoying something, she says, Daddy, can we come back here again? Uh, Daddy, can we eat this again? Uh, at first, I thought she was just being greedy, but later I realized this. Because she enjoyed it, she's afraid that she loses it. I think it's the same for us, isn't it? Even at the, the best moment that you enjoy, you realize how I wish I could hold on to this. But at the same time, it's bittersweet because you know you can never hold on to it. But God says, I'm going to give it to you. And your last forever. Death cannot rob us from God's blessing because death has been won over. The son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God has already been victorious over death. And so that moment in heaven when you treasure and say, God, how good it is, God says it's going to get better. It's going to get better. That is how God plans for his kingdom and his king because the king will just get better and grow and grow and grow and people are just going to love him more and more and more and enjoy the reality of what we have been made more and more and more. So how should we respond to such an amazing love of God? Let's look at David's response and then we will close by looking at our own response. Let me look at verse 18 for us. Then King David, he went in and sat before the Lord and he says, Who am I, sovereign Lord? Meaning, God, I'm, I'm a nobody. What is my family? We are shepherds. We're just people taking care of sheep. That you have brought me this far. God, you have made a shepherd boy into the greatest king. Verse 19. And as if this is not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken 
about the future of the house of your servant and this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. When King David heard God's plan for him, he went in and sat before the king as if the peace, the kingdom, the relationship from verse 1 that seems so great, suddenly it becomes nothing and you realize that, God, you are just going to do something that is just uncomprehensible. And you know what the amazing truth is? Because the amazing truth is David doesn't even know what we know. What he knows is to imagine and he starts planning for it. And he says, God, I can't even imagine how to thank you. He says in verse 20, God, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord. How great you are, sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. There's no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. No, friends. God has revealed even more to us than to David. God has done even more for us than what David had experienced. Because through Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, through Jesus, the son of God, he has offered us forgiveness of all our sins. We are offered blessings and eternal life because Jesus will rule on the throne forever. I want to close with this story of, of a great reformist called Martin Luther. This is Martin Luther's dream, right? Or he kind of says this, and I'll read it to you what Martin Luther said. In a dream, Martin Luther, he found himself being attacked by Satan. Satan unrolled a long scroll containing a list of Luther's sin and held it before him. On reaching the end of the scroll, Luther asked the devil, is that all? He says, no. And he came out and pulled a second scroll, and then he pulled a third scroll, and then when there's no more, Luther said, you have forgotten something. He says, quickly, take each of them, and write over each of them, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, has cleansed us from all our sins. This is what... God has done for us, and even more. Our response to God cannot be less than David, because we have received even more. Our, perhaps our response is this, who am I? Who are we, Sovereign Lord? And what are our families that you have brought us this for? As if it's not enough in your sight to forgive us of our sins, you have called us your children. It's one thing to forgive a sin of enemies and other call this, the enemy my son and I'm going to bless you with my inheritance. But that is what God has done. From Genesis 3, humans and eternity does not match. Do we catch it? We all experience this. From Genesis 3, humans and eternity will never match. But at 2 Samuel 7, God is saying they will once again match because your king will make sure that it happens. What started off as David wanting to do something for God ends with God doing something for David and through his offspring has done it for every single one of us who will come to him that we can call the one that we have offended father. Perhaps we are just slowly getting a glimpse of the breath and the depth of the love of an eternal God that God's plan for us is never temporal but it's always eternal. If you can think of it, it's not big enough. Probably that's something that we learn from, from history, from the Bible. If you can think of how great God is and how big His love is, then you have not thought of it enough because it's not comprehensible. David couldn't comprehend, but we have even more than him and we can't comprehend. It's just a foretaste of what God's love is like. So David's closing prayer is this, and we'll soon close for hours. He's saying verse 28, Sovereign Lord, You are God. Your covenant is trustworthy and you have promised those good things to your servant.
And King Jesus give us these words in John 6. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Dear friends, have you and I responded to Jesus? If you have not known Jesus, will you come to him? But if you have already known Jesus as your king and ruler, will you sit in God's presence and give thanks to him? To just sit in God's presence and give thanks to him. That is the beauty of David's prayer because his heart was there and his heart just responds. Let me close us with prayer at this time. Uh, Give us just a bit of time to just pray by ourselves. If you have not known Jesus, this is a time to know Him. If you have known Jesus, it's time to give thanks. And I'll close in a short moment. Let me end your prayer as a corporate prayer for us. Who are we, Sovereign Lord, that you have withhold your judgment until now? And it's not enough in your sight to offer forgiveness of sins. You actually offer us to call you Father. How great you are, Sovereign Lord. There's no one like you. There's no God but you. Thank you for Jesus, the eternal King, my King and my Rescuer. Amen.